Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. This morning, we are going to look at Luke chapter 3 together. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to join us there. And as we're all turning there and getting situated, uh, these, these hymns that we sing um, around this time of year are absolutely filled with some of the most rich doctrine of Christ that you will find. And uh, I will guiltily tell you that I ask Cody to sing these songs every year to remind us, not of all of the bells and whistles that go along with modern worship, but of the rich theological heritage that we have in these wonderful incarnation hymns. I hope I've given you some time to get to Luke chapter 3. This series that we're finishing up today, this Advent series that we've been working through over the last five weeks, there's been a theme to it, and every elder has mentioned that theme. The theme is promise and fulfillment. We've been looking at the promises that God made to his people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, about the Messiah that was to come, the anointed one who would come and, and undo the marks of sin. And that promise fulfillment paradigm is going to, well, not end today, but I'm going to bring it back to that where I began the series in Genesis 3 and try to show a little bit of a continuity between the promise that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman would come and he would bring an end to man's demise. And of all of the gospel writers, it seems to me as I've studied this that Luke leans into that theme of promise and fulfillment more than any other. He wants to show us that everything that is taking place at the turn of the Christian first century, all of the things that were happening surrounding Christ in Jerusalem, all of these things were promises that were made to God and, uh, by God to his people in the past. Now, we started this series in Genesis 3, and we just sang about the fact that in Genesis 3, we learned about the first sin that occurred. We learned about the first curse that was handed down, and then we saw the first gospel promise made. When God cursed the serpent and he told the serpent this, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, a killing blow, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first instance of God promising that he was going to send one who would undo the, the, the brokenness brought about by Adam and Eve's sin. And the one that he would bring would be a he. Now, our, our elder Mark reminded us a few weeks ago the, of the promises that God made after that in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17, when God promised to Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we looked at that. And then Jeff uh, stood up and he, he taught us of a lot of the different promises, the, the messianic prophecies that were made and how they pointed us to Christ. But he also reminded us of that, that series of failed leaders in the, Israel's past. How they would fail, the, the nation of Israel would be excited and they would, feel, they would be filled with hope and then that leader would fail and they would find themselves again in this season of sorrow and then the prophets began to prophesy that there was coming a day, there was coming a promise, there was coming a son who would bring hope to the people of God such that no sorrow could ever overcome it. 
And then just last week, our elder Dan, he taught us from the book of Micah about a ruler who was supposed to come forth. This ruler would be the ancient of days and is a ruler who was going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. This ruler would bring about peace to God's people and he would care for them like a shepherd cares for sheep. All of these promises, some made hundreds, 700 plus years before Christ ever came onto the scene and they are all finding their fulfillment at this time, in this season. From the very beginning, God has revealed to his people that the ultimate solution to the world's sin problem, to man's sin problem, would ultimately rest in a future king who would come into the world and crush the serpent's head. God doesn't operate with a plan B. God has one plan. There has always been one plan. And all of these promises were meant to direct our hearts and direct our minds to the fulfillment of what we celebrate on this day, the coming of the Son of God into the world as our Savior, Lord, and King. So this morning, that's what we're celebrating, the fulfillment of promises made. And I want us to look at an odd passage, perhaps. I want us to look at the genealogy of Jesus in Luke to help us do that. I'm fairly certain that none of you were expecting to have a Christmas sermon come from the genealogy of Jesus. But we believe that all of the Bible is inspired by God and it is profitable for his people, which means that in some way this list of names here has something to teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to read this in a few minutes, and then I, or in a minute, and then we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to give us understanding, and then we're going to learn about three things. Number one, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Number two, we're going to look at Jesus' family tree and see what it might teach us. And then three, we're going to understand something of Jesus' mission to save us. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I'm in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Please follow along. Jesus when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joshek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Menah, the son of Matathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Father, would you help us 
as we've gathered to worship you and celebrate with all the things that are happening in our lives and in our culture and even at our homes, Lord, would you help us to focus for the next 30 minutes on your word and what it teaches us about this day so that our hearts and our minds can be filled with this truth and our, our lips can respond with praise and our, our hearts can be filled with joy and hope and confidence and we can give you the praise that you are due because of what you have done on this day. So would you accomplish your purpose in the preaching of your word? Would you open our hearts and our minds to see and receive not just your truth, but the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he intends for us to understand and be blessed by in receiving him? Would you bless me as I preach? I pray that you would move among us, accomplish your purpose in Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want us to look at is the very first verse that we learn in verse 23 that this is when Jesus' ministry began. And the first thing we learn about is that it, it began when Jesus was roughly or nearly 30 years old. Now that might sound odd to us. It's not very odd in that day. It was common for rabbis. It was common for teachers. It was common for men who had, um, were, were getting into ministry or were going to be involved in a ministry to wait until they had come of age. And 30 was a nice round number. And we can understand from this and other passages of Scripture, especially what we've, we, we would have seen in Luke chapter 2 about Jesus' early life, how he continued to grow in uh, maturity and, and stature with both God and men, that, that during the time before Jesus was 30 years old and came into this public ministry, that he was at a time of preparation. And I find it very interesting that he waited until 30 until he was prepared. He waited until 30 until he had grown in wisdom and stature. He waited, and this is a good example for us, for some of you who might be interested in ministry. Maybe you feel some burden or call to be an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, or maybe you want to be a pastor, or maybe you want to be a missionary, whatever that might be. This is a good example for us. If the Son of God needed to wait until he was 30 to be prepared, then we should plan to do the same. I remember early in my ministry, I was in my early 20s and felt the burden of God's calling on my life to preach the gospel and make disciples. And, and I went to my pastor to discuss that with him and he made it very clear to me, son, if you have received a call to ministry, then you have also received a call to prepare for ministry. And we have that responsibility and we see something of that in the pattern of Jesus's life here, that a calling to ministry is a call to prepare. He was being prepared for this day. But the next thing we see is not only that Jesus began his ministry at about the age of 30, but we read that he is the supposed son of Joseph. It's right there in the text. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. This is what everyone in the town of Nazareth believed, right? They would have believed, they would have understood um, that, that this Jesus was the son of Joseph. He was the carpenter's Son And the town of Nazareth was not very big, maybe a couple of hundred people, maybe not even that many, but they all believed that Jesus was the son of Joseph. Now there was a, a scandalous backstory to all of that, but that's what they believed. And from a legal standpoint, they were absolutely right. He was the legal son of Joseph. Joseph claimed him and became his legal father. But Joseph's backstory lets us know that Jesus was adopted and cared for by a faithful man of God. We do know a little bit about Joseph. 
Joseph was an honorable man. Joseph made a significant sacrifice, personal sacrifice, when he went through with the marriage to Mary, even though he knew that she was pregnant and the child was not his. Joseph was a man of significant faith because he trusted the word of the Lord that came to him in a dream, telling him that the son to be born would be the son of the Most High, and he would be great in the eyes of God. Joseph heard those things, and Joseph went through with it, and he was a faithful man. But even though it appeared that Joseph was Jesus' father, that simply wasn't the case. The Bible tells us in the passages that we've read, even this morning, and some of the songs that we've sung this morning remind us that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, just like Isaiah said it would happen. Isaiah said, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. This is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was the supposed son of Joseph, and he began his ministry when he was roughly 30 years old. Now let's get into the genealogy. Look at Jesus' family tree. We see this list of 77 names here, most of which most of which you, you've never heard before, and most of which you can't find anywhere else in Scripture, at least not specifically tied to these individuals. And it's at this point that some of us wish that, that Luke, who wrote this book, had known about footnotes, right? I mean, he could have just put a little footnote there, and it could have, we could have found it in the back of our Bibles if we wanted that list of names, but, but he didn't do that. God's word is perfect, it's without error, and it's, it's meant to reveal something of God's purpose and plan for us, and all of it is profitable. So why has God given this to us? Well, I want to try to answer a few questions in that. Number one, why is genealogy important for Christmas? Number two, how does the genealogy hold out hope for us and then number three, how does this genealogy show us Jesus' ability to do what all of the prophets said he was supposed to do to save us from our sins? So three questions. Number one, why would a genealogy be important on Christmas? Well, you may know this. The Jews kept extensive genealogies. And they did this for various reasons. Number one, they did this because when God parceled out the land to his people, when they first came into the promised land and he parceled out that land, he gave that land to individual tribes and then to individual head of household within that tribe and then to families within that household. And that, that land was tied to the family and genealogies allowed those families to keep the, the blessing of God, to keep the inheritance from God to them intact. If a patriarch died, then they could pull out the genealogies and show how his land, his inheritance was going to be shared between these sons, right? I mean, that's one of the main reasons that they would keep genealogies. It was for the purpose of maintaining their inheritance from God. They also kept extensive genealogies as a motivation. Like you, you probably know this, the Jews were commanded by God to not just enjoy the faith that they had, but to pass that faith on to the next generation. We take that very seriously here in discipling our young people to know and serve and love Christ. But the Jews had the same thing and that, that genealogy served as a motivation. They can see the family lineage. They can see the promises that God made to their fathers and forefathers and great-grandfathers and, and the patriarchs and they could be spurred on in their motivation spiritually to pass on their faith in God and his promises to the next generation. 
But here's the odd thing. The genealogy of Jesus here really is not about inheritance rights. The genealogy of Jesus here is connected and and revealed to us to show us something special about Jesus. Luke wants to show us that Jesus is connected through family relations, specifically to messianic prophecies that were made about him in the Old Testament. One of them that we've been singing about, one of them we've been reading about, and it's a specific promise that God made to David that through him, the Messiah would be born. Here's that promise. This is from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you an offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now here's where it gets interesting. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The Messiah, as we've learned in weeks past, was to be born in Bethlehem. He was to be born into the tribe of Judah. He was born to a young virgin girl. And each of these things are fulfilled in Jesus. And right here in Luke chapter 3 and verse 31, we see that the promise that God made to David, that one of his descendants would come forth and establish his throne forever, we see that that is fulfilled in Jesus. The genealogy shows us that And not just us, it shows the Jews that their long wait is over. This Prince of Peace has finally come. The Son of God has come. Luke wants us to know that the promises that God had made have been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Our King has been born on Christmas Day. That's why this genealogy is important for Christmas. But there's another question. What hope does this genealogy hold out for us, for you, for me, for our children? I mean... When we look at this list, we see great names, right? We see individuals with a a great heritage. They did amazing things. Abraham is lauded in the Old Testament and the New Testament for his great faith in God, that, that God would fulfill his promise, even though there was nothing tangibly out in front of him to convince him otherwise. That that God would even require Abraham to sacrifice his own son, and Abraham would say, Yes, God will provide a lamb, all of those things. And yet we have Abraham in this and we're thinking, well, I don't stack up to that. My faith is puny. Then there's others like Noah. I mean, we know the story of Noah, the only family to survive the first pouring out of God's wrath upon the earth. Or or you could continue to, to Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, who wrestled with God and who became the father of the, the, all of the 12 tribes. Or, or again, David, the first king in Israel to unite all of the tribes. But there's something about those names that help us to identify with not their greatness as men, but their failures as men. See, these weren't just great men. These were great sinners. Don't overlook that fact. Adam failed to protect his wife from Satan's temptation. He, too, sinned against God after she had done that. And then he blamed his wife for it, and then he ushered all of humanity into rebellion against God. Noah, yeah, he did great things on the ark, but when it was all said and done, the planet of Vineyard got drunk, 
fell asleep in front of his family naked. Abraham, great patriarch, yet he gave his wife away twice to save his own skin. Jacob, great man, became Israel, yet he cheated his brother out of his birthright, and then he cheated and deceived his own father in order to steal a blessing. David committed adultery and then murder to cover it up. Great men, no doubt, but great sinners as well. The black marks along the way in Jesus' genealogy reveal to us the depth, not of our faithfulness, but of God's covenant love. These men were great leaders. They were great sinners as well. This genealogy reminds us that God uses broken and sinful men and women just like us for his good purposes. He does not this to highlight not the men so much as his own faithfulness and grace. When we read the genealogies, it's natural for our minds to go back to those wonderful stories and to see something of an example in these individuals. But when, when we read these stories, we really should not be looking at the faithfulness of men. We should be looking at the faithfulness of God. That even though these men were great sinners, God forgave them and God used them to bring about his desired purpose, God remained faithful though men were faithless. Salvation is not about our faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness. And that gives us great hope because here's the reality. Everyone in this room is a sinner. Everyone in this room is a sinner in need of a savior. The story of Christmas The story of Christ coming into the world, that's the missing piece of the larger puzzle of what the Bible is all about. But at the center of that story that we call the good news is the reality of the bad news about us and our sinful condition. You see, we were created to glorify God. And a major part of how we are to glorify God, if you can remember the old catechism, how do we glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Here's the problem. By nature, we don't love him and we don't do what he commands. We are after our own good. We are me monsters. We are naturally inclined to be selfish. We are naturally inclined to do what we want to do rather than doing what God tells us to do. We are naturally selfish and sinful. And God calls this indifference, this natural selfishness, he calls it sin. He calls it missing the mark and transgressing the boundaries that he's placed in front of us. And all of mankind have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us that God is storing up his just anger in order to pour out that anger upon sinners like us. And we, like all of mankind, deserve God's justice. That's what we might call the bad news, but it's the reality of our human condition. I know that this is probably not on your mind in terms of Christmas, but when was the last time you thought very deeply about your sin and its great offense to your creator? Because Christmas is about God sending the solution to that problem. We are generally more comfortable with sin as a concept But we we kind of play a game with sin where we like to redefine it in such a way that it's not that pressing upon our hearts, right? When we might say something like, yeah, man, I know I'm a sinner. But what we mean is, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. 
That's not what it means to be a sinner. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not the depth of what it means to be a sinner before God. What it means to be a sinner before God, it means that by our very nature and by the actions that flow out of that nature, we are rebels against our Creator, our good and gracious and generous Creator. We are rebels, and because of that, we deserve the just judgment of God for our sin. And it's God's word that reveals this to us. And it reveals over and over that the problem is not just in our actions. It, it rests in the, very na- in, the, in the nature of man, in the heart of man. The problem is our heart. We need a new heart. And God reveals that at the core of our being, at the very level of our innermost human nature, sin has infected every impulse, every thought, every motivation, every desire. We are not simply sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners and we desperately need a savior. And that's why this genealogy and Christmas holds out great hope to us if we recognize that we are sinners and that we need what God has given us. Believe it or not, this genealogy, boring though it may be to read, it holds out good news to us. God has sent his son into the world to save us from that sin. The hope of heaven, as we sing about, has come to dwell among us. God didn't simply make a decree from heaven on high. No, he came down to dwell among us so that he could live not only with us, but for us in obedience to the commands of his father and then die in the place of sinners upon the cross to pay the due penalty for our sin or the sins of all those who believe so that we, by faith, can receive the greatest gift that God could give, salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Christmas and this genealogy holds out hope to us. Last question. How does this genealogy show us Jesus' ability to actually do what the prophets promised he would come and do? How does this genealogy prove Jesus' ability to save us from our sin? This genealogy does a lot. But it also reveals something to us. And not just this genealogy. You can see it throughout the, the birth narratives, throughout the incarnation story, throughout the Christological passages within the New Testament. But this genealogy helps us to understand something unique about Jesus. He is fully God and he is fully man. In this list, we are told that Jesus is both the son of Adam and the son of God. Jesus connects the line of humanity to the Godhead in a unique way. Jesus was both God and man. Two natures, unmixed, resting perfectly and completely in the one person, Jesus Christ. He became a man for our sake. He entered into our situation. He took on flesh and blood to serve as our redeemer. He became our human substitute taking upon himself the sins of of his people in order to suffer in our place. Or like we sang, he became the better Adam who fulfilled the law of God on our behalf. He took on human flesh. There's the humanity side of Jesus. But God didn't simply send us another flawed human leader. God sent his Son, his one and only Son, the one who was with God in the beginning and the one who was fully God, the one who represents God to us on earth and who fulfills as only God can the divine demands of the law. 
Jesus, the second person of the eternal triune God, allowed himself, according to Philippians 2, to be clothed in flesh in order to die in the place of sinners as the crescendo of God's plan to save us. Jesus uniquely fills the role as the savior of humanity. He took our flesh upon him so that he might take our sins upon him. And in order for a man to have peace with God, a man must pay the price. And Christ maintained his deity because only a perfect son could fulfill the righteous requirements of God. And what that means is that only one who is fully God and truly man can bring peace between God and man. And the incarnation of Christ is the miracle of God that makes our salvation a reality. We don't abandon our theology because there's this new cultural way to do Christmas. No, no, no. We hold on with both hands to the richness of God's revealed word and the theology of it, even if we can't explain it. Because it's in this tension The uniqueness of Christ is displayed because only that uniqueness can suffice to save us. Okay. Conclusion. We've looked at Jesus' early ministry. We've looked at Jesus' family tree. We've answered some questions about how that means something to us. Now let's think about this, about Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was to die to save us from our sin. Christmas isn't about lights and trees and presents. Christmas is about the Son of God coming into this sinful world to make things right again. It's about the love that God has for his creation being put on display. It's about God's amazing love being extended to us even though we don't deserve it so that we can be forgiven and saved and adopted into God's family. That's what this is all about. The Son of Heaven humbly and willingly took on our humanity and came to earth as one of us. Like we sang, heaven came down. This beautiful reality helps us to know that the greatest treasure on Christmas morning wasn't the, the gift that the Magi brought to you know, Jesus and his family. It was the gift that Mary held in her hands. The one who came to give himself to us and for us to make us his own. So if you're a believer in Christ, we have something to celebrate, something amazing, something miraculous, one of the two grand miracles of our faith. We have something that we can't fully comprehend, and we can sing about it and declare it and celebrate it and rest in it. And no matter how difficult your year has been or how stressful the holidays have been, there is nothing that should rob you of the joy that Christ has come, and nothing can take away the praise that he deserves. In fact, we should praise and celebrate all the more because God, knowing our sin and knowing our need and into the dark, difficult days that we've lived through, he allowed his light to come and shine and he shines still. So believer, remember and celebrate. What about those of you who are here because your family asked you to come? I'm thankful that you came. If you're not a believer, I want you to know that these promises, that this reality is not just for those of us who are here who've already believed, but also for you. You can get in on this today. We are all broken. We are all sinful people. We are all filled with dark thoughts and a dark past. We are more sinful than we care to admit, and yet Christ is more loving than we could ever imagine. 
The darkness of sin has broken all of our hearts. That's one of the things that we all have in common. Sin has corrupted all of us, but Jesus came to conquer that darkness. He came to die to put an end to sin's reign over us. And he rose from the death on the third day so that all of his promises could be fulfilled in us. And if you will follow him and not walk in darkness, you too can have the eternal light of life. So my final words would be this to you who don't believe. Receive the Lord Jesus. Lay down your sin and turn away from it in repentance. Pray to God and ask him to forgive you your sin because of what Christ has done. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage of scripture. I thank you all the more because of what it points us to, who it points us to, and the glorious reality of Christ's first coming. I pray that we would be able to remember and celebrate that the joy of God would well up in our hearts as we ponder what Christ accomplished. And I pray for all who are here today that we would be able to leave this place with hope because of Christ. That we would be able to leave this place with a renewed confidence in salvation because of Christ. And that we would be able to leave this day uh, and celebrate and be thankful for all that this day represents. Lord, we We ask your blessing even over our final song of praise to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.